Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, just a quick note here before we begin our interview with Midian. This interview was recorded originally back in March, so it's a pretty old interview. So I did meet up with Midian again. So what you're going to hear here is this first part is just part one with her, and then I will introduce part two when that comes up as well. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. Today, I'm excited to be virtually sitting down with the co-founder of Munster Makeup Effects, Munster Midian Crosby. I have known Midian for a long time, so I'm very excited to have this conversation with her. She's a female practical special effects makeup artist. She's worked on over 30 feature films, some television shows. She's worked on like The Walking Dead, Lovecraft Country. And just just numerous, numerous films. So I'm just really excited to talk to her about the world of special effects, especially being a female in that world, and then a couple of other fun little things. So Midian, if you want to just introduce yourself, and just if there's anything else about your background you'd like to tell the audience. Hello, and uh, glad to be here. Thank you, Erin. Uh, this is a, a pleasure, and it's always great to talk about uh, fan things, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, get some shine some light into the the world of uh special effects and movie making Mm -hmm. yes yes very much so so what was it that made you want to delve into the world of special effects what was it that attracted you well i've always been kind of uh attracted to the dark side of things uh and i think a lot of that has to do with uh, a number of different elements that i grew up with Uh, One is that I had a brother, I have a brother that's 19 years uh, older than me, and he he would bring me like things like Fangoria magazines and uh, Cinema Fantastique and and these different magazines and uh, that had a lot of horror and different special effects in it. And uh, and he also for a brief time worked at a mask making company. And I just that was kind of the only experience uh, or that exposure that I had to kind of that world. Growing up in Colorado, I didn't know anybody that worked on any kind of production whatsoever. It was like, you know, this kind of unknown thing. But I think it was as early as like watching Clash of the Titans as as a kid and and kind of watching some of the, the, the things in that, being amazed by it, how they could bring Pegasus to life and and these these beautiful monsters. Uh it was also the first time I'd say with Clash of the Titans, I noticed that there were uh, credits. There were kind of these people that 
were up there, whether it was a producer or a director. I didn't know what they did, uh, but I was kind of fascinated by it. And then just kind of noticing all these different things, but also getting exposed to a lot of uh, Hindu and Buddhist uh, iconography. Uh, we moved to India when I was four, you know, being exposed to things that look terrifying, but are actually protectors, uh, like uh, what you, we call Vajrapanis. I actually have a tattoo of Vajrapani. And they look really devilish and scary. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have like the elephant god Ganesh and and all these things really, I just loved them as a kid because they were good. Uh, and, and so getting exposed to a lot of that. And then, you know, at six years old, Michael Jackson's Thriller uh, came out and huge Michael Jackson fan. Uh, of course, you know, anybody growing up now into special effects, it's going to be, you know, hey, I got, I heard Soft Face Off for the first time or whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, that first uncut, you know, long video of, of the whole thing, you know, and you get to see Michael Jackson as a, as a werewolf and a zombie and you still love him. I mean, you did. And that made a, that made a big difference uh, in, in how I saw, um, you know, creatures and monsters growing up. I was always a fan of Frankenstein's monster and kind of the sympathy you have for these creatures that are misunderstood. Um, and then I got into like the X-Men and, uh, eventually, uh, I, about 12, 13 years old, I, uh, saw a book, a set of books in, while I was visiting my brother and it was, uh, Clive Barker's, um, books of blood and they had these really gross covers and I was just totally fascinated by them. And I'm not sure if I asked to borrow them or, or if I just borrowed them. But in any case, I did get into Clive Barker through my brother as well. And that kind of opened up this, this whole new world uh, of, of horror visuals and the fantastic, as, as he calls it, uh, which is kind of like, you know, dark imagination. Um, I always like, you know, the Dark Crystal was also a huge influence um, growing up. And, uh, you know, Ghostbusters, gosh, I grew up in the, the, the 80s, man. Like, the best time for practical effects. Like, how can you not grow up in the 80s and not be totally fascinated and in love with practical effects? I mean, I think it's kind of, that was the heyday. That's what we're all, that's what we all want to work on is that kind of stuff. And it's, and it's kind of unfortunate that anybody doing it right now, I feel kind of like, you know, I missed out on, you know, that kind of like great 80s stuff. But then anybody coming up now is also going to miss out on a lot of the stuff pre-CGI. And so I know where I'm kind of like skipping ahead a little bit, you know, and, and just kind of like, but all of this does tie together. It's like what you're, what you're influenced by as well as, you know, what you're seeing and, uh, and what, at what ages. The moment, I mean, it really did happen like suddenly in, in several different points and at nine years old, I was at a Christmas party. Uh, my dad had taken me to for his work buddies, and they were partying. And they just put me by the TV. And uh, John Carpenter's The Thing was on. And I'm, here I am, nine years old, and I'm watching this thing. And the dog scene literally had me completely, totally freaked out. But at that point, it really made me think, like I said, I know this isn't real. It looks so real. How did they do that? Um, because that was just such a mind-blowing um, effect. And it was really disturbing because I love 
I love dogs, you know, and yeah. it's, it's, uh, and unfortunately I've learned some things since then that I, I don't, don't really want to talk about, but, uh, that, that kind of mar that a little bit, um, a little, but, uh, it doesn't change the fact that it's really, really impactful. Um, and so, you know, when people, I don't know, we keep our kids so, so sheltered, but so much of the stuff I saw that was possibly even quote unquote inappropriate for me, uh, really did affect, uh, my life and direction of, uh, creativity, uh, mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you hadn't been exposed to that stuff. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to pursue that. I mean, I watched horror starting at like five, six years old is when I first, like, it was like poltergeist was my babysitter showed it to me. So yeah, I mean, you know, when you do see that when you're younger, I do think there is a part of you that like, like I have weird fears and strange fears because of watching so much horror. But I also appreciate that I was able to do that and that like my dad would show me and my mom never would because she can't stand horror films. But my dad would show me, you know, like Alien and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah. And it does inspire you and make you wonder, you know, how does someone come up with that stuff? How, do the, how does that stuff get created? And you already delved into a lot of movies that did inspire you. And I know Clive Barker, I know you've already delved into that a little bit, but I know Clive Barker is a big inspiration for you. I mean, you changed your name, of course. <laughs> so I don't know yeah. if there's anything else you want to talk about with Clive Barker, because just because I know how much Clive Barker means to you. Of course. Yeah. For, uh, especially for listeners that, you know, may not know, uh, of any of the Clive Barker, uh, mythos, you know, he's the creator of, uh, Pinhead and, uh, Hellraiser and, uh, and the one that, uh, really got me was, uh, Nightbreed. Uh, I read Cabal and went and saw Nightbreed. I was one of three people in the theater. Uh, I saw it when I was 15, 14, I think I was 14. I, it was NC-17. So my parents actually, my mom lied to, to let me go see that. They were going to see Henry V and they thought, oh, I'll just, you know, let her go uh, in there. And they, they really didn't ask for ID uh, back then. And so uh, the guy kind of was like, you raised an eyebrow, but there I was <laughs> uh, in an NC-17 film uh, as a 15-year-old. And it, it, it was amazing. It really blew my mind. I, I loved the creatures and, and all this stuff. And in the story, uh, Midian is a place, and it's a place where the the monsters live. But just like with Frankenstein and uh, you know X Men and all these other things, the the monsters are actually kind of the good guys, and they're persecuted by the humans who misunderstand them and want to destroy them. And so I've always been an oddball. I've always been kind of like the strange one and uh, the outcast, uh, the creative, the the sensitive. And so you feel on the outside already uh and and then there's this like beauty in the darkness uh of some of these stories that is just so intriguing that um it really changed my world uh i had a friend that changed her name and i thought oh my god that's something you can do uh i had a very very boring name jessica and it did not suit me at all i didn't like it when i was two i was telling people to call me casper after the friendly ghost <laughs> um, and uh, you know, whatever, you know, Jess or Jesse, cause just, uh, I just didn't, wasn't a Jessica ever. Um, and so at 15, right before I went into high school, I was actually able to legally change it. Um, went to court had to have it printed into the paper. Uh, you know, my mom was really cool about uh, all that stuff. And, you know, my mom and I used to also listen to 
or watch uh, USA Up All Night uh, with uh, mostly Gilbert Gottfried yes. was the, yes. the main one uh, when I was uh, <laughs> doing it. But there were a few other hosts. Mm-hmm. And so we watched a lot of bad movies, too. Uh, and it uh, and so <laughs> just just entertainment was a huge part of, of growing up. And then I got HBO in my room with headphones at 12. I stayed up all night long watching all <laughs> kinds of movies, especially yeah. in October. So, yeah. <laughs> if it That's was awesome. out, yeah. I was influenced by it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And USA Up All Night. Oh, my gosh, man. I remember spending hours watching up all night and there are certain movies that I remember scenes from and I could not know that and I could never remember the names of them because they were just these really awful horrible movies but they were so entertaining and I wish I could remember the female host there was one female host that would be on with him and I can't remember her name but yeah 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 it was great well who do you look up to in the business as far as other special effects artists so here's the thing it's like I would say, you know, when, when years ago uh, and when you're kind of like starting out and, and there's this, you know, kind of a hero worship that, that we all get with, with the people that we hear about the most, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I would say, you know, Greg Nicotero was always like the, the number one. And I got to work with uh, on the same film uh, and kind of in Pittsburgh, kind of cross paths with him several times. Uh, and we worked on some of the same movies, but in different uh, kind of areas. And I always really was impressed by how he worked with his team. You know, I kind of wish I had looked into more just everyone in special effects and kind of started reaching out to more people when I graduated college, uh, which we can talk about in a minute. Like there's different ways to get into this business. I'm not sure if I did the right one, but who knows? There's <laughs> different right ones for different people. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's, it's so complex. We could talk to, we could probably talk at two hours just on different ways to learn and get into the, this industry. Cause that's, that's a whole ball game. I wish there had been kind of like more people around me when I was growing up that did this, that I could kind of understand more about the industry before I got into it. Because after I got into it, it was really more about just getting good and and doing better. Uh, And a lot of that was on my own. Um, But there are so many really great artists. uh, And and the people that I admire the most now are the ones that I've worked with. You know, the people I can see what they do and what they overcome and, and the skills that they have. Have been uh, I've done some work for Robert Kurtzman uh, over the last couple of years, uh, and he, uh, you know, it's like we talk about Greg Nicotero. He's the he's the K of the K and B, and then uh, you know you got Howard Berger, and uh, and then you have Robert Kurtzman. He was the K, and he kind of split off where the other two kind of stayed in L.A. Uh, Kurtzman kind of stayed or went back to Ohio, and kind of is a little bit more, you know, the the upper indie kind of mm. area and mm-hmm. there's uh, that's that's kind of another separate kind of thing is that you've got you know these big oscar winners and then you have like you know kind of the the interesting indie with with lots of effects um and and so it's like really interesting to see how the, they kind of split off but i admire them both and and all those kind of folks um mm-hmm. from both sides you know, both the indie side as well as the um, the big major movie kind of stuff. But 
some of the people I admire the most are like Steve Tolan, uh, who owns Tolan Effects in Pittsburgh. And he was my mentor, I'd say, you know, right out after college. Uh, we both went to the same school. Uh, I worked with him quite a bit while I was still in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and we've kind of watched uh, each other's career kind of open our own studios and kind of what how we kind of delved into different things. And it's just really good to see other people working really hard because most of the people that I went to school with uh, are doing this anymore. Uh, it's, oh, really? it's hard. Mm. It's really hard. Uh, and, and kind of, you know, you have to admire anybody that's been doing any of this over a decade um, mm -hmm. because that means they just, you can't give it up, you know, because it's hard. But Greg McDougal is another guy that uh, I, I've worked with recently. He's, he's pretty, Pretty phenomenal. Uh, I really admire people that can do everything um, because there's a lot of makeup effects artists that go uh, on set and they can apply a fantastic makeup, but they probably can't sculpt it, mold it, cast it, paint it, apply it. Um, and I'm kind of from that old school kind of learn everything, do mm -hmm. everything mentality uh and it's it's kind of a hard one to do these days uh because it takes a lot of schooling uh and i think now you have to be ready to work faster and so i think if you kind of like pick an aspect uh either on set or in the studio especially that you're gonna have more success if you can decide pretty early on which one of those you're gonna do i wanted to do everything uh greg mcdougall he does everything uh you know I would say, you know, Robert Kurtzman can do everything, uh, you know, all these guys, you know, they can, but a lot of the ones that, uh, that you're going to see now, they just do the, the ones that get the most acclaim are the ones that often are on set applying mm -hmm. it. And that's only maybe a third of the component. Yeah. So it's the final, final thing. Special effects is a really difficult place for, for women too. It's a, it's a male dominated field for sure. Um, and depending on where you are and what you're trying to get into, uh, it's definitely going to be a factor. Even if you don't think it's a factor, it's a fact. And I admire most, I'd say the qualities I admire most in people is uh, like from Steve Tolan. He doesn't say, he doesn't say it can't be done. You know, if a director asks for something, he never says no. Uh, he'll say how how long it'll take and how much money it'll take. And so I really admire that kind of quality, uh, is that, that the, the creative ability to find a way. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have a lot of respect for, uh, like, the one of the directors and the creator of uh, Lovecraft Country, Misha Green. Um, you know, young black woman in the, in the industry, and she can tell you what she wants. That's also a very important distinguisher in this industry. There's a lot of different ways to do something. And that's with special effects, you know, there's not just one way. There might be 20 different ways to do something. And somebody has to make a decision as to which way it goes. Mm -hmm. And somebody like uh, Misha, she's able to kind of look at something and be very firm about it, what she wants. And it might throw a wrench in the plans because but it wasn't what you were expecting but she's she's uh she's sure what she wants and uh and the vision's there and that can really make or break a production as well as a team you know you want to have somebody that knows uh that isn't wishy-washy in yeah. this business 
Well, and I, and you, I know you already spoke a little bit about this, about um, CGI versus practical effects. And how, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that CGI is necessary sometimes? Or do you think it's just become too, people are depending on it too much in the industry now and they should use practical effects more than they do? The most wonderful thing that you can get is a beautiful marriage of practical and digital. Um, it's hard to do because they're two very different uh, skill sets, two very different groups of people, and they're usually not working together. And I mm -hmm. think the, the, the biggest issue is, with, is when you have totally separate teams uh, and producers that don't understand the differences. Practical effects is usually done by a small group of very creative individuals handcrafting something and you don't exactly know how it's going to end up. You might have this, like, you know, beautiful, happy accident that happens when you're sculpting something or, you know, creating something practically and physically. But with CGI, you've got a room of people all doing one little aspect and one person that's directing it. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's much more control. CGI is precision but in a way that you know they haven't quite gotten past that uncanny valley you know and and some of it's with you know the physics the physics just aren't there the actors aren't actually reacting to anything mm -hmm. um and it's there's an element that doesn't feel real if you can put some portion of that as practical it's always going to feel more real does that mean there's going to be a resurgence of practical effects? Yes and no. I think we're in it right now. I think we've been in it for the last few years. I think there are directors that are now working that grew up in the 80s like I did that love practical and understand what it's all about. Um, and I know... You can relate to this one. Uh, I think you just saw it. Uh, Possessor mm -hmm. uh, by uh, uh, Brandon Cronenberg. Freaking love it. And if you, I, I have the kind of a, I don't know if you've seen the behind the scenes interview with him and the, the effects guys, mm -hmm. but uh, they did all that practically uh, in camera stuff. Uh, and it's, it's pretty, pretty phenomenal, but they had to, they had to really spend a lot of time uh, working it out. And that's the whole thing is that there's not a lot of lead time, uh, especially when it comes to the big budget stuff. And so what defines that line of whether you should use practical or, or CGI ultimately comes down to how much prep time do we have. Some mm -hmm. films only come together with 30 days prep time. And if you only have 30 days, there's a lot of practical effects you can't do. And so you have to push it off to the end. Whether you like it or not, that might be the only option you have for your film. Or you put massive amounts of money into a big maybe in the front end by splitting it up amongst a bunch of different small mm -hmm. practical effects companies. Mm -hmm. uh, because even if the big ones are, are still, they're still not that big. <laughs> it's, it's still a pretty small industry. But CGI, it's a, there's, a, there's just so many people that have gone to college to do their vector graphics and uh and and they can they can just farm these people and and utilize that 
that capability. Is it better? No. No, it's it, the, it, the best thing is when you put them together, like uh, Blade 2. Blade 2 is a fantastic example of uh, the, the fantastic marriage of practical and uh, CGI. You know, if you need something to be faster, deeper, um, you know, if you want to remove arms, legs, of course, you know, digital effects is, is absolutely fantastic for that. You can't do that very well with uh, special effects and uh, practical effects. So... Yeah, and just to you know, kind of clarify for listeners, there's there's a whole world of uh, you know, you say special effects. Sometimes that, you know, in in actual film sets, you're gonna special effects is gonna be your rain, your fog, your your uh, snow, your um, sometimes the bleeding effects uh, will the blood itself flowing or like the vomit will all be done by special effects. And you actually have makeup effects, which is all the stuff that touches the, the actors itself. Mm-hmm. And then you have kind of special props and different uh, things that might also be made by the same kind of special. So special effects is like broad, you, you know, and then you have visual effects, which is generally digital. And so it gets very confusing to the, to the average person uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about special effects. What, what is mm-hmm. it? It's, and, you know, as a whole, it's creating something, it's tricking, tricking the person. It's, 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 it's the magic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just say special effects is the magic. Yeah. Well, and I want to talk about some of, some effects that you have done, in particular on the indie film that you did, the 2018 film Eat, which if people don't know what that's about, it is about an actress who literally starts eating herself. Um, starts with her thumb and then kind of progresses from there. And I'm just wondering, because with those effects, having watched it, I'm just wondering how you did that, because it really looks like she's eating herself. So I'm just wondering what you used to do that or whatever details you can go into on that, because it just looked so realistic that it was just, uh, wow. <laughs> this is all I'll say about that. It, was, it was really well done, though, really well done. Thank you. Uh, Eat is uh, probably one of my favorite films because I can I can say I had I was in charge of every aspect of that. Uh, you know, it was a definitely uh, a very small project. Uh, we we shot it in sixteen days, uh, and it was Jimmy Weber's kind of directorial debut for his first feature film. And so he had raised all the money, like he had basically just saved money all mm-hmm. for two years to, uh, or all summer to, uh, he was doing political, political commercials in, in Washington uh, to, uh, to, to, to put this movie together. And so he gave me the script and said, uh, how much money would you need? And that's always kind of a, t- a tough, a tough call because it, you don't know how big the film's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. But like how much absolute minimum can you do this for? It was, uh, and I'll tell you, it's, it was $17,000. And that's not a lot for a movie that has effects in almost every scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. Um, and we like had our, our, our first uh, studio in Colorado. I mean, we did this. What was this? I mean, it came out 2018, but it was probably, what, two years before that? That we, we did it, and it was my husband's first film working together. He just kind of got involved uh, because I needed his help. Uh, and I think that's how a lot of uh, partners get started in 
uh, in the effects industry, I have noticed that almost all the effects companies that I can think of have either a husband and wife or two friends or somebody. You've got to have that partner that's also willing to stay up literally all night to finish something. Uh, mm -hmm. And employees are not going to do that. You know, you've got to have somebody that's just like, you know, it's all small business. And uh, you've got to be able to like, you know, get through those really tough times. And so in addition to uh, basically Josh, my husband doing the blood rigging uh, and learning how to do it uh, as he went uh, with the, the bullet hits and uh, blood rigging stuff, I had a few students and I think one proper intern that, that helped me out with that. Um, so we had like maybe like five people that, uh, that were working on this, uh, not even full-time. We cast Maggie's uh, chest, arm, and leg, uh, and we created like sculpted pieces that uh, like a full, it was originally a full fake arm and a full fake leg, but we actually turned the arm into prosthetics so that, because we realized we didn't need to like take as much out, um, we could actually utilize uh, what she had there. Um, but she actually, actually had to bite her toes off. And so we did have to have uh, a prop leg for that. Yeah. And we also knew that she was going to have to eat a lot of this stuff. And because of the budget, we worked with uh, silicone. I mean, sorry, uh, poor man's silicone, which is gelatin. The issues with gelatin is that it can be um, a little bit hard to apply as prosthetics uh, as, as far as stickiness. This was before encapsulated products. Um, so if anybody's listening out there and you knew much about like the, the silicones and gelatins out there, both silicone and gelatin are really hard to stick to the skin without something kind of around it as, as an encapsulant to, to help that stickiness. And so it was a little bit of a challenge, uh, but gelatin can also melt under hot cameras, uh, in hot summers, luckily in Colorado, not being too humid. Um, and, shooting most of this stuff indoors, we did not have any problems whatsoever. Uh, and one of the fantastic things about this is that unlike foam latex and different things that um, you have to do a lot of painting on to, to make them look like skin, uh, both gelatin and silicone have a translucency that's very similar to skin. And so we had a formula that, that worked, uh, that matched Meg Maggie's, uh, the, the, our actress's skin and so we were able to, to kind of make these pieces that just blended onto her skin really quickly uh, with hot witch hazel. It actually melts the edges of the gelatin. And so it happens pretty quickly. Uh, and some, some of these effects we'd have to have, we, we might have 20 to 40 minutes to apply a piece and, and get, it, get it going because uh, um, 16 days to shoot that entire feature uh, was pretty pretty remarkable. I applaud every single person that worked on that. I think that uh, probably most impressed with, uh, with those folks. In fact, uh, the DP for that film mm -hmm. uh, just made his first feature film and um, it's called um, Rent-A-Pal. And if oh, you haven't yeah. seen Rent-A-Pal, mm -hmm. it's totally it showed. Yet, it's really great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got Will Wheaton in it. And mm -hmm. so it's the, the skills and the, the abilities of, of everyone uh, involved there is pretty pretty phenomenal uh, group mm -hmm. of people. And so, yeah, we, 
you just kind of you you put in the time. You uh, we we did uh, every every effect. We had different names for different things. We called uh, the uh, the the initial one uh, the hangnail, uh, the skin tab, uh, and then we had corn cob arm, um, and then I forget what what we called the leg, but uh, but those were some of the nicknames we had for things. Some of the edible stuff was actually made from uh, melted gummy bears. Um, and, uh, so that she could actually chew and, Mm -hmm. and, and eat that. And that film is really, it it keeps coming back to me. It's like very, very powerful story in, in, in itself. Uh, And especially as I look back on, uh, almost 20 years working in film, it's, it's about how this industry can consume you. Mm -hmm. And how there's an emptiness that you can get inside yourself trying to be something for movies. Mm-hmm. And it's a dark side, you know. Sometimes your dreams don't come true. And it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a pretty, pretty grim, but uh, in a lot of ways appropriate um, thing. Uh, I have to say when I, you know, when I was in school, one of the things I did was I, I actively avoided going to L.A. Because everyone I met in L.A. Uh, or from L.A. had kind of a really jaded, negative attitude um, about a lot of stuff. And I kind of felt like maybe it was because L.A. And now I realize it's it, it has a little bit more to do with uh, the bigger films and kind of the, the difference between working on passion films or having a career and a job that you go to every day that's you doing the same thing all the time. I think a lot of that is, is having to work with these producer minds that are, are, they don't care about the art of it. Uh, it's all about how fast can you do it and how cheap can you do it? Mm-hmm. And it, it gets very frustrating. Um, you know, you'd asked, about uh, those I admire, I do want to say, you know, Rick Baker uh, was always somebody whose whose work I really, uh, it's outstanding and, and spectacular, as well as uh, you know the the the, the grandfather of, of special effects and the the one that we all adore is uh, Dick Smith, and he did uh, Amadeus and Little Big Man, and and it just pioneered some of the 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 techniques that we still use today did some of the best aging effects, uh, which is one of the most difficult things, uh, mm-hmm. uh, ever. And so, uh, those are, those are two very important people in this industry. But what you're bringing up brings me to a couple of my n- next questions, because you are based out of Atlanta and I know you've already mentioned LA and how you view LA and how cold LA can be. And so then is that part of the reason you decided to work in Atlanta? What is it about Atlanta that is better as opposed to L.A.? Well, I mean, not everybody's going to have the experience I've had, but uh, I'm a Colorado girl that went to school in Pittsburgh, spent six years in Pittsburgh starting her career, and then went back to Colorado to kind of take a break because of just working too much and kind of being overwhelmed uh, and having a a really good friend of mine die in a car accident. So I went back to Colorado, not really expecting to stay there, but knowing I didn't want to go to L.A. I didn't I wanted to love what I did. Uh, I didn't want to get uh, jaded. I didn't want it to turn into a job. 
And so I tried to make it work in Colorado. There's not a lot in Colorado. And I really didn't expect to stay there, but I did meet my husband. And then we, we, we started Monster Makeup Effects. And honestly, a lot of this is just hasn't really been planned. We, we did, we did what we could. I mean, you just, you go, we started a company, we did classes, we did whatever we could to kind of like, you know, we did student films pretty regularly. Uh, It's actually a great business for, uh, you know, small, smaller cities uh, because they need effects. And if you're good at it, then, then they're going to hire you and they're going to spend the money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They might be the only person getting paid on the on the the student film and it may never get finished but it's going to give you practice and it's going to give them something better than they would have uh, otherwise so so really what happened is we wrote we reached our breaking point in colorado uh and we didn't know where to go we'd heard atlanta was good but we were afraid of the bugs and the heat i'm not a fan of florida florida's like my my living nightmare uh, which is funny because I actually worked uh, for, with Joe Blasco in uh, in Florida for eight weeks, uh, like two years ago, <laughs> and it just confirmed I don't like Florida. But I've worked all over. Uh, you know, I have worked in LA. Uh, I've worked in you know many states all over. Uh, and and you go on location. I really like being on location. I also like studio work. So I feel really lucky that I've gotten to do kind of pretty much everything. But to kind of roundabout in this. Uh, I got uh, a union job in, cause in, in Colorado I was union, but it didn't really mean anything because there really wasn't any film. And uh, you know, we did get, we got this Netflix film that came through and it was like, Oh my God, we could get hired on this. And then I got, I got a utility job working with construction and it was, you know, it's like, you can't turn your nose on this at, down at this. This is like three months of union pay. Uh, but here I am, the owner of a special effects company, literally sweeping floors for construction. I'm, I'm a positive person. I, I look at things and I think to myself, you can, you can always see some aspect of something awful that teaches you something that you can take forward. And if you can look back on something and, and extract kind of what, what lessons you learned or people that you met or things that happened you can you can move through this world uh, with a more positive outlook. And so nothing I did, I, I tried to always kind of look at that. Uh, I worked with some, I got to see kind of how a bigger film can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, how they build um, sets. Uh, these were some, some of the biggest sets I'd ever seen. Uh, and uh, I got to kind of watch and, and learn. And it was like a meditation. It was like a walking meditation every day thinking to myself, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you doing? Where are you going? And at the same time, we had been talking about tiny homes and we got approached by a, a, a TV show about motorhomes uh, and they were looking for a special effects couple. And it kind of got us thinking about being mobile and being able to, because we having to live out of, uh, hotels and like, if you're on location, um, for, for different things, it, 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 it breaks up your life, you know? And I, I, I missed, 
I missed my dogs. Uh, I missed my husband because even even working on the sweeping floors thing, it was uh, an hour and a half drive every day. Uh, it was super long days, uh, and I didn't get to see him uh, six days a week. Um, and it was it was pretty hard. And so thinking about having a an RV, being able to have your house nearby, and then maybe also having a special effects studio out of the back, kind of it, it got our minds started on this thought and we started doing a little bit of research and while I was sweeping that floor I think I came home one day and I said let's do it let's let's get this RV and let's hit the road and uh, it took several months of a very determined effort to uh, we finally got an SBA loan and we hit the road and our intention was to take it everywhere to to see all the different markets and uh, to make ourselves available to a lot of different places because we thought they shoot movies all over, right? So we went to LA. We actually had a film to shoot out there. Um, and then uh, afterwards, we spent four months there. We thought, all right, we're in LA. We're going to give it a try. We're going to really do this. It was right before a potential writer's strike. Not a lot was happening. People were kind of grumpy. And we got this impression even from people that we knew that you were we were friends before but now that you're here you're kind of competition or we don't know what you are because you're something different you've got this this rv are you here are you not and we kind of got this impression from just about everybody because i think a lot of people move to la and they're not really serious go ahead and suffer for a year and then we'll talk to you <laughs> And it's kind of like this, uh, this, this rite of passage. And we also got this kind of feeling like we're California. We've got enough people. Sorry, we're closed, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, people were nice, but a little bit frosty. And so it was a little bit different than we expected. We were a little disappointed. And uh, on, honestly, we were pretty depressed. And we were thrilled when a film that we had just worked on uh, needed us in Colorado for uh, some reshoots. So that pulled us out of L.A., and we were, you know, we were going to give it the gung-ho, but we were really happy to have an excuse to, <laughs> to, to move somewhere else uh, because I don't think it was really for us. It's really a different mentality and attitude there, uh, for sure. And then, you know, we went to Colorado. We went to, when we decided to just kind of check out all the different markets, we went through Las Vegas and kind of met with the film commission there. And we uh, kind of talked to some people and then we went through uh, New, New Mexico and they were like, yeah, you should move here. We've got plenty of stuff. And I was like, do you really? Uh, <laughs> you know, they do. But it's like not like I talked to the one guy that's there that has a studio and he's not busy all the time. And that's like, mm. mm-hmm. you know, if he's not busy all the time, then you're not going to be busy all the time. I'm not going to be busy all the time. <laughs> uh, and so that didn't seem like, you know, and they all want you to move there because it's very with the big films, you've got to be, you've got to have a local license. You've got to be part of their locals or you've got, they've got to classify you. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's much harder. Um, and so we went through Oklahoma. We did the same thing. They've actually got a pretty good uh, film thing in, in Oklahoma, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, even went through Ohio. And then like we had some friends that had just moved out to Atlanta and we decided, uh, Oh, actually there was an effects artist that was looking for a foam runner. I, I kind of like sent him an email. I said I was available. I'm good at foam, et cetera, et cetera. I had somebody else vouch for me. And I thought to myself, this guy's never going to hire me unless I'm there. 
I said, we're in Oklahoma. It's, you know, just a few states away. Let's do it. Um, and so we did. Uh, we just decided to go ahead and uh, check it out. And uh, we met with our friends that were out here, too. And literally within two weeks of being here, I, ch I changed my, I got my driver's license and uh, transferred my uh, union membership. But literally the difference between L.A. and Atlanta was L.A. was, sorry, we're closed for business. And when I got to Atlanta, they went, well, howdy, you have experience. Isn't that wonderful? Please come right this way. Here's a bunch mm. of work. We love you. Like so it that, wasn't as jaded, basically, too. It wasn't as jaded. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, not jaded, not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's booming here. Uh, it's still booming here. Uh, you know, it's, it's had a little bit of up and down, uh, since, you know, not even talking about COVID, but like, you know, there's, we had like four months where there wasn't any work and people were losing their minds. And as from, a, you know, working in Colorado and struggling through all kinds of different things, I thought four months, that's nothing. <laughs> that's nothing. You know, you should be ready to survive four months with yeah. very little, by doing something else. I mean, that's, that's kind of the skills that we've gotten from having to, to work in a non-major market is the ability to kind of just do something else mm -hmm. while you can in some other way to, to survive mm -hmm. um, so that you're not counting on, uh, you know, full-time work. Because you've worked on independent projects and you've worked on big studio projects. And I know we have talked before we did this interview a little bit about what the pros and cons are. And I know you've talked about producers versus directors and the art versus commerce and the money versus all that stuff. So which do you prefer? And if you want to talk just a little bit about what, what your experience is with working on those. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if I can say which one I have a preference of though. Uh, <laughs> it's, it kind of boggles my mind a little bit. Um, I came at this with the desire to keep the passion. And so I've been kind of like fiercely independent for a good portion of my career. So a lot of the stuff I've worked on was independent. Um, and I, I really, I love that feeling. There's, you know, the, my favorite part about working in film is the people and the team and creating something together that's awesome. There's pros and cons in the independent for that, um, in the large part, because you might think you're working on something wonderful and then you finally see it. And it's really disappointing. There's several films that I've worked on in the independent market that that are really good. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Strange Girls, which is one of the ones that I worked on that was actually shot on film uh, with a female director. It's just really good. Um, and then I, you know, eat and motivational growth and some just like really spectacular uh, hoax was was wonderful. Uh, that was the one that almost broke me because I did too much on it. However, it's it, it it's a you know these these passionate directors that that you can then take and talk to directly. You're talking directly to the director. You're creating something with with this person. And you're putting all of your 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 creative uh, force into it, and a lot of your heart. And you're you you know I was able to be a department head and uh, and hire small teams and work with uh, really wonderful people to to really push things through and and uh, create new things. 
Uh, and so that's kind of the independent world is that you, you have more importance. The film itself may never get known. It may never get seen. You talk to your friends and they're like, oh, I just finished the film. Oh, yeah, what was it? Oh, I've never heard of that. And, uh, and so there's, there's kind of a frustration there that, you know, you put so much work into something and, and either very few people saw it or nobody saw it or it didn't turn out as well as you hoped. And, and so there's a long time waiting uh, for, you know, sometimes independent films can take ooh, upwards of 10 years to come out. One of the first films I ever worked on just came out recently and I was like, oh, no. So, you know, that's kind of the heartbreaking part of it. You, you know, you're probably not getting paid enough. You're probably doing way longer days uh, than not getting any overtime or, you know, sick time or, uh, you know, healthcare for sure. And so, like, yeah, yeah, no, that's probably good for people starting out. But you might want to, if you want to make a career out of this, transition faster into something bigger uh, because it is a different ballgame. And if you want to support yourself and actually have a career, working on union stuff is the way to go because they have the money. And one of the best things about working on union stuff is that you get these wonderful things like a, an actual livable wage that also goes into time and a half at like after eight hours and then goes into double time at 10 hours. And then if they, you know, don't break at lunch on time you get like a, a, a bump every 15 minutes they go over and you're just like cha-ching and there's really great food and like <laughs> but and 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 the best thing about that is that you you know I have a, a walking dead jacket that I got on wrap uh from my my department head on season eight and you wear this thing out and it's like, people look at you different. They get all excited. They're like, Ooh, you work on the walking dead. That's amazing. You don't get that when you work in independent film, you don't get a, Hey, you worked on eat. Oh, I know you like, no, no way. Like people aren't going to know that. And so there, there's kind of a social, I don't want to, not cost, but like bonus that you get from working in, uh, in, in these other films, uh, in the bigger stuff, in the union things. And so you've got, you've got that, you've got great pay, uh, you, uh, but the downsides are that it takes over your life. You're still working 14, 17 hours a day, so oftentimes six days a week for a machine that really doesn't care. If you have a doctor's appointment or a dentist's appointment or you need to go do something with your family or you have a dog at home, like occasionally I have worked on some some films where, you know, you can bring your dog to work or like the department heads can bring their dogs to work or like, you know, that that are a little bit more humane. I, I got, you know, you, they give you time off to actually do your physical therapy uh, because you hurt your your wrist, uh, you know, on the last show. And then there's other shows that, that don't, that don't allow you to, that, that you should, you should assume that they're the most important thing in your life and nothing else exists. They don't want to hear anything. Like it's just, yes, yes. And on top of that, you're probably don't have much or any creative control. 
I felt, I feel lucky that, you know, there, there are some things that I've gotten to do that have been a lot of fun, like building, uh, cardboard robots uh, for the Halloween episode of uh, Stargirl. I was covering for a friend of mine working in the aging and dying costumes department. And sometimes they just come up to you and they say, we need these things. Can you do it? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you get to like go to Home Depot and buy like, you know, all the flashy light things and some spray paint and go to the thrift store and get like a colander and like, you know, and build these like cool ass robot costumes uh, that were awesomely featured, by the way. Uh, I was super excited. (laughs) I watched that episode the other day and I was like, yay. But, uh, you know, and so you have moments where maybe like, you know, I know the person that did like Daryl's jacket, uh, you know, the aging on that or just like some element of it. You know, when you see it on screen, you know, you did that little bit, that one little thing there. And so there's there's moments of that, but you're not, I mean, unless you're the designer or, uh, you know, even then, like, it's being controlled so much by, you know, uh, this congregation of, of producers that, that all get input as to what it should look like and what it needs to be. And there's kind of like, there's kind of a cool thing about that, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed over the last few years just being able to be like, yep. Just tell me where to go. I'm happy to not think. This is fantastic. Just pay me that awesome check and give me my health care. Uh, mm-hmm. This is fantastic. And so I think if you're that type of person, man, it is, it's, it's golden. And I was thinking that maybe I was this kind of person because we really got into it. Uh, and then COVID stroke struck. And literally over the last year, we've been out of it and questioning if we want to give our lives back to it, if we're a little too independent to have somebody else tell us what to do and to just sit. Because sometimes, whether you're a makeup artist, whether you're a costume person, uh, you're going to be sitting. During the hurry up and wait of of filmmaking, there's a lot of wait. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you work your butt off and then sometimes you're just sitting or standing there for hours and you're thinking, this is my life. You know, and at least you're making money, but you're giving your life. And, you know, we just got a kitten. We have a, a dog that's really attached and has separation anxiety. And the idea of being gone all day. I mean, it's like if I could do this part time, that would be perfect. Mm-hmm. But they can't they don't take you part time. <laughs> <laughs> I just went did like a muscle suit for um, a superhero show here locally. And I, I just, you know, it was just a quick thing. you like two days. And then suddenly it's like, are you available tomorrow? Are you available tomorrow? And I was like, Ooh, um, can, can, uh, maybe a, a day or two a week. But then, you know, with the COVID testing and like, you have to, you have to get tested and then, then you're cleared two days later and they're testing every four, like four times a week. And, uh, and you're trying to avoid like everyone. And it's, it's a different world now, uh, on set as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so you've touched on a lot of the things. Um, so I kind of want to transition then because that brings up, you started a personal chef business. So was that because you were thinking, 
I don't know if I want to get back into this or I don't know if I want to give my whole life to this. So I'm going to find some other way or was that part of because it's also COVID or what inspired you to do that? Just kind of like to, to put it out there, I think creativity and the ability to adapt are elements that we don't give, we don't teach our kids enough. We don't kind of um, allow ourselves. Uh, we get very kind of stuck into uh, this is who I am. Uh, this, this job is, is who I am. And that's my identity. I think that's a lot of how I feel over the last, uh, you know, nearly 20 years is I'm a special effects artist. That's who I am. I work in movies. I love movies. And it's, to be honest, the first part of the lockdown, like the, the first part, we're all thinking we'll be back to work in June. This is only mm-hmm. temporary. It's going to be just fine. We'll play some video games and take a break. Like we never had, you know, I've never taken unemployment before. This is great. We're getting paid. We can order our Amazon and, uh, and just kind of like kick back and, and relax for once. And so that was kind of nice. And then it kept going and you started to think, well, then who am I? You know, if I'm not doing effects and then you start thinking, I started thinking like, well, I should be sculpting. I should be creating something. Isn't that what I love? I'm a special effects artist. And I kept finding that I had no motivation, zero, to do anything creative except cooking. Literally, like, the only thing that I could get excited about at all was, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to learn how to bake this kind of bread. Uh, or, you know, I really want this kind of takeout, but I don't want to go get takeout. So I'm going to learn how to make it. And these, I've always wanted to challenge myself. I don't think any of us should ever stop learning. I think you should always be challenging yourself. I think that's when we feel alive is that, uh, you know, when we're just slightly out of our comfort zone. And so I think that's, that's also another thing is that I wasn't, there was nothing that I was doing at home that was kind of out of my comfort zone. There was nothing really challenging me and I felt really kind of depressed. Uh, I I really struggled uh, with not working uh, as somebody that didn't work uh, or has worked since they were 15. Um, And uh, I watched a lot of cooking show competitions <laughs> on TV and it kept like, you know, I watched a lot of Bobby Flay and I think in Bobby Flay, at least, especially there was, they just kept mentioning personal chef. Like here's the personal chef of, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg. And I was like, okay, yeah, of course he has a personal chef. Like, and I came across, uh, came across a, I don't know what happened first, honestly. Uh, I found this uh, chefpreneur um, guy that uh, was kind of teaching chefs from the the from restaurants that are out of work how to start their own chef personal chef business. And I was kind of looking into that a little bit, and I started kind of like, oh, okay, this is something that is kind of more affordable, and that people, normal people, like not Steven Spielberg, are actually can maybe afford and do and. Um, and it kind of like, I just learned that that was kind of a thing. I mean, it's just honestly exactly what happened with special effects. Uh, one day I opened up a, a Fangoria magazine and I saw an ad for, 
for three ads for different schools that taught special effects. And you go, oh my God, that's something you can do and get money? I, that's what I have to do. That's me. And it almost happened the same way with this. It was like, oh my God, like something else I'm really passionate about is something I could actually do at least for now. Uh, and I think it was, I was really depressed one day and I didn't even want to get out of bed. But what I did do is I grabbed my iPad and I just opened up Squarespace and I just started playing with the website. I was like, I have all these, I'd, I'd been taking photos of all the food I'd been making for, for months. And so I had all these beautiful food photos, you know, uh, and and I just started plugging them in and kind of putting some stuff together. And then, you know, I did this kind of like 14-day chefpreneur class thing, and it got me going. It was just like, okay, here's the steps. You know, you've started a business before. You kind of know some of this stuff. Just give it a try. And so that's kind of the exciting part of, of starting a business is the very beginning. Uh, then it got really scary. Hey, I've registered my business. Now I need clients. Like everybody thinks it's great that I've done this, but uh, now what do I do? And I'm still, I'm still struggling to reach out because I don't want too many people. I don't want to, don't want to do groups of like, you know, I get, I get requests from these different websites and stuff for groups of people. And I'm not there yet with COVID. Uh, my precautions are pretty severe. And what that has led me to is working with other people, especially in the film industry. What I wanted specifically to do make people make food, good food for my friends in film that don't have time to make dinner or uh, are going into work for lunches that are, you know, talking about how great the food is um, on these big sets. It, it, it was better before COVID. They, they kind of had this this adjustment period where they would just get a box of cold food um, of something that they checked off, you know, an hour ago and then some PA had to kind of bring to them. Um, and so like, it wasn't like these great catering smorgasbords that you could build your own salad and do all this stuff with. Uh, and so, and I think over COVID, a lot of people didn't eat well, were, were more sedentary. I gained weight. I know that. Um, but, uh, and so a lot of people were struggling to, to eat right. Um, and so I wanted to be able to help my, uh, film family. And so I actually called the company, I called the company, um, film family food. And, uh, I want to make, uh, good food for my film family. Uh, and right now it's like, it comes full circle. Uh, I'm actually cooking for, uh, um, I can't say who, cause it would be a spoiler, but I'm cooking for one of the cast members of the walking dead. And so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and you know, some, 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 uh, other crew that, uh, you know, here and there for, for different things, but I haven't really, I don't know how long I'm going to do this, but I, I, the more I do it, the more I realize that it's, uh, I can make similar amounts of money with less stress. Uh, and maybe I'm going to do this for a minute. Uh, but it's, it's probably not, I'm one of those people I follow my heart mm -hmm. and my passion. And I also want to direct. I actually, at the very beginning of COVID, I, I finally got my director's reel together. Uh, and it was just so ironic. I got a tattoo that said the dream never dies. 
uh, for an actor friend of mine that worked in, uh, he acted his entire life. Uh, and so it's filmmaking and movies and all that. It's in my heart. It's in my blood. Um, I think I'll always be connected to it. I think different aspects of it I'm going to explore. And I'm not going to say what's going to happen. But right now I know that that food is fascinating me. And just like makeup, it's, it's a temporary art that is also kind of a meditation. Um, you know, when I'm chopping, when I'm cooking, I'm not thinking about the worries of the world. Uh, when I'm applying a makeup, I'm not thinking about anything else. You get, it's like you go into a zone. And that's kind of the beauty uh, of, of these elements is that uh, it can transport you. Uh, or transports me to um, a, a place of calm. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Okay, well, and I really loved that first part and really loved uh, what Midian had to say. And things have changed since that first interview, of course. So here is the second part of the interview where we just sat down recently and talked about a lot of great things. So I just think you'll really enjoy this. So here is part two of my interview with Midian. Okay, so Midian, thank you so much for coming back and updating me because I know the last time we spoke, it was like back on like March 13th or 14th or something like that. It was so long ago. Uh, Well, I wanted to ask you because I know you've been doing a lot of projects and I know you can't speak about them, but I wanted to know what is it like right now in the age of the pandemic? Because we are still in a pandemic, everybody. People seem to want to forget that. What is it like working on sets right now? It's, It's interesting. Because um, working on sets at the moment is, we've all kind of gotten into a routine. They call it, uh, you know, if you're working regularly, they call it cadence. And if you get called for a job and you just, it's for a day or so, uh, you might get asked, are you in cadence? Uh, And that means, are you being tested three times a week? Um, uh, And are you on schedule? Uh, Because otherwise they have to to schedule a, a, a new test for you. Um, So there's just lots of testing, uh, a lot of variance between uh, how deep and hard the uh, testers go uh, digging for the the (laughs) specimens. And, you know, it's it's a real challenge for the production uh, because if somebody, anybody gets COVID, they have to, to like shut down that little like Mm -hmm. segment uh, of people that that were uh, associated with them. And sometimes if you're working with, depending on the project, uh, if you're working with uh, what we call first team or the the primary talent uh, and you're going to be close to them, you have to wear a a device that that tracks you, like just basically kind of pings off of other trackers all day. And so that if somebody does come up uh, positive, they can uh, figure out who you were within. Uh, for that amount of time, you know, for longer than 15 minutes or whatever their, their, uh, you know, amount of time is, uh, there are COVID officers everywhere and kind of, and this will springboard into some other things. Uh, I'll try and remember to come back to it, but 
it, it definitely seems like uh, it's a bit of both, uh, you know, I, I, ultimately it's, it's for the production's safety. Uh, it's not necessarily for our safety. It's mm-hmm. for the safety of the uh, primary actors and the production's pocketbooks. Uh, because what can happen is uh, if they get a, co- a positive COVID case, that it, it totally, uh, they might have to completely rearrange the schedule. Uh, mm-hmm. They have to like pay people to just stand down. It's, it's, it's been a huge cost uh, for uh, the productions and, uh, and it's, it's difficult for everyone. So, but we're doing it. Uh, basically there's a huge demand for entertainment. So the show must go on. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, you get used to it. Uh, there are things that I do to kind of help protect myself a little bit more when I'm working with, like, say, background. Uh, we kind of thought that maybe the age of COVID, we would see a lot less background. Um, and maybe that was the case, you know, for the shoots that we're doing going to, on during lockdown. But it's right back to the the same old. Uh, it, it's hundreds of backgrounds. Uh, uh, and, and you're working through these people. And sometimes they're the ones coming on on the day, uh, getting a rapid test, which is less, less effective. And I think they get both sometimes. And then, but the rapid one has to come back clear before they can get, uh, in at all. Um, and it's just like, I mean, there's so many details I could bore you with it. Ultimately, uh, we have to kind of, you know, look out, uh, make, make sure we wear our masks. Uh, one of the things I do when I'm dealing with a lot of people is I wear one of those little fans around my neck and it just kind of blows up right across my face. And so what it's doing is taking any breath that might be coming out of my mask and blowing it up as well as, uh, any air that's coming from them towards me. Uh, particularly if you're doing makeup, you can't, the person can't be wearing a mask. And so, uh, we have to wear a mask obviously the whole time. I don't know. I, I think it helps. I don't know. We'll see. I haven't, you know, I don't want to say anything, but I'm going to knock on wood. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it gets, you get used to it though. Um, it's nice. Some productions offer mask breaks. Some don't. Sometimes you just have to go find a spot and, and get some air. <laughs> it sucks wearing a mask all day long, but I'm sure a lot of professions already know that. So it's what we have to do. Um, and now productions are coming up with, uh, you know, mandatory vaccines for anybody in the red zone, which is, you know, working with uh, primary cast. Uh, and uh, that's causing some hubbub. You know, a lot of people are very mm-hmm. upset about that, uh, especially here in Georgia, um, where I think the vaccination rate is only about 40% right now. So yikes went out and got takeout yesterday and uh nobody on the streets nobody in the stores uh wearing a mask not a single one mm-hmm. and if you look and, and the, the looks i get for wearing a mask is like ridiculous and i feel like saying like listen guys i'm doing this for you <laughs> i know i know it happens here too even uh, though we've got a much higher vaccination rate it happens here when i wear because i'm vaccinated but i still wear my mask you know, but you do, yeah. you'll get those looks of like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing a mask? You idiot. And I'm just like, well, um, okay, whatever you be, you're the idiot. I'm not the idiot here, frankly. That's the way I kind of view it. But it yeah. Amazing. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the misinformation is, is really powerful. Uh, and it's, it's it really is. sad. It's scary. Um, 
working on film, uh, it has been full blast since I talked to you. It's like a different world since we uh, we talked earlier. It's uh, it's been a roller coaster ride of uh, specialty costuming and some aging and dying, and then whammo right into prosthetics and lots of makeup and uh, life casting, and uh, and we've been just like slammed. Thank goodness we just moved and I've had like a couple of weeks off to try and get settled here at the house. So it's been really nice. But as a day player, as somebody that doesn't work as a full-time position on anything, mm-hmm. anytime we're not working, um, pretty much we're panicking. Uh, and it's it's really hard to have downtime and actually enjoy it because as an artist, you're thinking, um, everybody hates me. Nobody's going to hire me again. Uh, I'll never work again. And this is just an artist's mind. When yeah, it is. Little, it's just like we're suddenly worthless again. <laughs> it is. It's that self-doubt and that self like questioning everything you do and everything you say. And yeah, yeah. I'm getting that. better at it as I get older. I'm really enjoying uh, my days off um, on purpose now. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, and I know, you know, that, that leads me into my other question because I know um, IATESE is thinking of striking, right? Because of the conditions for people. I mean, I don't think people realize how many, just the just the casual viewer, I don't think they realize how much goes into a movie, to a television show, how many people work behind the scenes, that it's not just the director, writer, and the stars. That there are a ton of crew members that have to work hours and hours and hours and hours. And I know a lot of people are coming forward talking about unfair working conditions, that they're being worked beyond what they should be worked, um, working overtime without necessarily getting any kind of compensation for it, um, or at least not getting fair pay for it. And especially now when you also have to work with the hazard of, of dealing with COVID and the potential of, of, even if you are vaccinated, even if you are, there is still that risking your life factor to it as well, I think. But even risking your life in the fact that you might be really exhausted and you have to drive home after that and how are you, you know, that kind of thing. So as much as you're comfortable speaking about it, what um, what are your thoughts on the potential strike that might happen or anything you want, any information you want to give about that? Sure. Yeah, this is unprecedented. Uh, uh things that are happening right now um generally uh each each section of uh the IATSE uh uh union which handles a a lot of the crafts that are behind the camera uh or camera itself uh Mm -hmm. that uh you know non non non-actor uh unions uh are all over the country and they all kind of operate um fairly independently but under one code uh the international um uh, it is part of like a, a worldwide um, uh, union group, but there's never been kind of a, a full movement for all of IATSE uh, to kind of take a stand. And uh, what's been happening, and this has been, you know, printed publicly. So these are things I can I can talk about um, that aren't, uh, you know, union secrets or anything, but there has been some major contract stalls. Um, basically, the produ- production companies aren't budging. Uh, we've been trying to get things like uh, better turnarounds. And what that means is when you stop working, uh, what time do you need to be back at work? And uh, sometimes those are often nine or 10 hours. 
And when you think to yourself, well, okay, so a nine hour turnaround, you've got an hour and a half drive on either mm -hmm. side. So that's three hours out of that nine. So now you're at six hours and then you get home. Maybe you have a snack. Maybe you see your, your kids or your pets or your, your significant other for 10 minutes. And then you have to get to bed in order to get maybe four and a half hours of sleep so that you can get up, get ready, get back to work. Um, and it, th this can go on um, uh, over and over again uh, for weeks at a time. And what is happening too, since there is such this, this like demand for entertainment right now, is that there, uh, there are also a lot of these studios are working under a contract that is, you know, for quote unquote new media. Um, mm. And that is all the streaming stuff. Fact is, it's not new anymore. They've been getting away with a lot of discounts and like, you know, uh, special rates and things for quote unquote new media um, that, and they're making just a killing uh, on, on these things and making tons of money and it's not uh, uh, relating to any of the workers. Uh, typical work week for somebody that is, uh, you know, uh, say, my my profession makeup uh is you would get there sometimes two or three hours before crew call which is when everybody else most everybody else comes in uh, and that's when the actors have to to get made up and and get ready and then uh, they shoot for maybe uh a, at least a 12 sometimes a 14 and and up to uh you know a 16 17 hour day and then we have to clean them up and, and get rolling. And so what that does is with these mandatory turnarounds and what they'll do is sometimes they'll just pay the fee uh, for some folks. Um, sometimes they'll ask people to just kind of like, mm, you know, mm -hmm. come in anyway or whatever. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does, does happen in certain departments uh, really frequently, especially PAs because they're not even unionized. They, they get abused unbelievably. And a lot of people, you know, it's like we we love this work, and so they take advantage of that love. You know, it's like we get in this, we we want to like really work hard. We want to show that we can do these like outrageous things uh, in in minimal time, and, and we keep doing what they ask for less and less, and we keep doing it. And they go, great, it, we can do this next time. And uh, and so the fewer and fewer people doing more and more. And now what they're doing, it used to be occasionally, you know, towards the end of a season or the end of the film, uh, you'll start uh, maybe working through lunch and they'll bring you a box lunch and you eat when you can. Uh, it's usually cold and awful uh, or they'll, they'll try and just break people occasionally, uh, you know, in, in scattered moments. But you don't get that like 30 minutes all company break, uh, which is sometimes the time. I mean, 30 minutes is not a lot of time to get your food, sit down, eat mm -hmm. anyway. But sometimes you need to make that phone call. You need to talk to your significant other because you don't see them during the week. You need to like do some something. And yeah. um, what they're doing now is they're taking that away. They're just paying the mill penalties. And so people are working these 14, 17 hour days uh, without, especially like camera and certain people can't even sit down. PAs can't sit down. Camera usually doesn't sit down. And so they're literally on their feet all day long and they're burning us out. And so uh, we'll start sometimes at 4 a.m. on a Monday. And as the, as we, the week goes on, uh, you might be starting at 5 p.m. on a Friday. And so we call that a fratter day. 
And what that does is it also steals part of our weekend. Uh, a lot of productions are also doing uh, uh, Saturdays. And so they're, they're basically working us to death uh, and just paying tiny little uh, pittance to, to kind of like keep us satisfied. Well, we're not happy anymore. Uh, and we're starting to realize that we've all just been kind of holding it in and suffering uh, alone. And one of the things that has happened recently is there's an Instagram called uh, IA Stories. And it's anonymous stories uh, from those uh, both in and out of uh, IATSE working in film. Anybody working in film has, has submitted. Um, it's specifically for IATSE, but a lot of other folks have chimed in. And it is like the worst horror stories you've ever read. Um, the things that are done to people on movie sets uh, and, and the way people are treated like absolute garbage, replaceable garbage. Uh, and th we're all, we, we've worked years, sometimes spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on gear, on education, on uh, specialty mm -hmm. skills, on, you know, doing this for, for decades. And uh, um, we're not easily replaceable, but we're treated as though we are. And, uh, and, and everybody's been kind of suffering in silence. And so now with IA Stories, it's getting a lot of these out. And we're starting to realize that uh, we are all collectively suffering. And if we collectively work together, we can improve the quality of our lives. Uh, we can actually reduce maybe the divorce rate in, in film. Maybe, you know, there's so many stories of, of people just never seeing their parents uh, or a parent because of film and it's it's yeah. it's a shame because you know in the end we're just making entertainment um there's no need for this uh it can be done in less time when you see some of the things that they shoot you don't really know why we just spent four hours on that and it's just it, it you know uh, it's maddening when you realize that it's you know, some people are like, hey, I love the overtime. Yeah, until you wrap your car around a, a telephone pole at mm -hmm. six o'clock in the morning uh, after a 20 hour day. It's it, there is a limit. And that's why you don't see a lot of people over 40 doing a lot of these jobs because uh, it's it's really rough and uh, and people get permanent damage um, to their systems and their brains uh, yes, and your from, mental from health. health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I read uh, one of the IA stories recently said, uh, uh, like, I think it was a psychologist or uh, like it was a, a, a brain doctor of some kind, uh, like basically heard about how the how our weeks go. And he said it was something like uh, uh, flying uh, across the country every day and dealing with that kind of uh, jet lag and then also driving to or flying to Tokyo every week. And resetting your body literally every week through that. Uh, mm -hmm. And he said he's surprised that more of us aren't psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> so That's, I mean, yeah, it's scary. It's scary. Rampant abuse of, mm -hmm. of alcohol and drugs to, to, to lift people up and drag them down. And, like try and get enough sleep in the time that you've got. And, and a lot of people are just suffering alone because we don't know. And mm -hmm. now we know, and there is a huge movement across the entire country right now. And we are, it's not that we're necessarily about to go on strike. It's that we are about to vote on the option to strike, which allows the, uh, 
the main uh, negotiators to go back to the table with the mm-hmm. uh, producers and the, the production companies and say, listen, <laughs> you can't do without everyone. Uh, <laughs> so they're ready to strike. How about you come to a deal now? Because they really have not been listening. They have gotten to the end of what they're willing to do. And they're, are, are, it's, but we've been on a temporary uh, extension for months now on this contract. And they don't want to hear it. And so this is what has to happen. And we're all for it. It's, it's nice to know that you know, it's not likely that we're, we're going to actually have to strike. But, and if we do strike, it'll probably be a pretty short one. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there's, there's actually a really um, positive buzz uh, because we are realizing our, what, what being a union actually does. It gives us that collective mm-hmm. and uh, the collective is communicating now. So <laughs> I'm very excited uh, yeah. that, uh, you know, working conditions might change. What what we want is a normal day. Uh, we give up years, extra years of our life working uh, just to, to do film. Uh, by the time we have lunch, most people have finished their work day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's eight hours for most of us. <laughs> and so we've got another eight hours to go after that. Uh, and uh, it's rough. We want... We just want to work maybe a 12-hour day instead and get lunch. Mm. <laughs> like, we're not really asking for that much. Not only that, but I'm finding out the most horrible things from these IA stories. Like, uh, script supervisors, there there are a, a lot of, uh, in the contract, there are a lot of uh, minimums for certain categories of, of uh, folks. And... Um, like a script supervisor, super important, very highly skilled yes. job, uh, uh, very difficult to move up from. Usually it's to writer, uh, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, and they kind of get stuck in this job. And I was absolutely horrified to find out that uh, the base wage for a script supervisor, which they don't like to pay more than, is $18 an hour. Wow. That's horrifying. These people are working through their entire weekends and hours after work unpaid just to keep up because it's more than a one person job now because you've got multiple cameras, you've got multiple things happening and they just expect the same one person to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and that was really disappointing. It's like, it's first person that's been in film for 20 years. Like some of the stuff is really shocking to me. Uh, you know, that I always thought it was better on the union side and a lot of it is, but a lot of it isn't like, boy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I just, I mean, I just briefly going out at the, to the Colorado festival of horror, I just got a brief taste just of just the fact that, you know, I hadn't eaten anything in 12 hours because I was running around interviewing people doing stuff and just that little bit of not eating for 12 hours and, that that just takes something out of you where your brain's not functioning the same way and you're trying to do stuff and it's it's really hard on, on your system and and you know I think people have this mindset people 
you know, just out in, in the general public who aren't working in, in that medium, I think they have this idea in their head that, well, you're doing something fun. So stop complaining and who cares? Uh, but you know, <laughs> I mean, people shouldn't be dying or shouldn't be ruining their lives for yeah. this. I mean, it's just, it's not, I mean, and for the chance to get to do what they love to do, it shouldn't make it where, you know, in the end, maybe it'll taint that thing you love. So it shouldn't, it shouldn't do that to people. So what are things, and also I want to throw out there, everybody, we are following that account on our Instagram account. So if you want to find that Instagram account, if you're having a trouble finding it for any reason, go to uh, the accounts that we are following and you will find it there. Um, and definitely read some of those stories because they are horrifying and sad and they will make you see things differently if you haven't already. Um, but I want to know, Midian, are there any, is there anything that people in the general public, people that just watch and consume media can do to support the union at all or? Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, and I don't necessarily have a ready answer, but I think being informed uh, and knowing, uh, and, and making your voice heard, uh, you know, even if it's just a comment with solidarity with the movement that's going, uh, boy, uh, handwritten emails to, to production companies, uh, saying that, uh, you as a consumer don't appreciate the abuses that are going on and would like to see change would actually mean more than than our words right now because mm -hmm. uh because you guys are the ones that are uh you know of course we all consume media but we're kind of like the silent majority and you guys are the majority uh as far as like the listeners the people that are are out there uh um doing this and so if you know for every one person that writes in it 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 it, it, it kind of represents so many more uh, that care. And so the, the companies that hear these complaints uh, do tend to take them seriously when, when there's enough of them. So if you have a few minutes, just look up uh, on, I mean, the, the, the Google has everything you need to know as far as uh, where to go um, uh, and, and do us a solid and, and write these folks and say, you, you see what's going on uh, or just, just be involved. Take a look, uh, read the IA stories and make a comment, uh, share them with your friends just so that people are aware of what's going on and, uh, and stand with us and, and support. Uh, uh, that would be wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Midian. And, and I will I will put a link to that Instagram account in our show notes so that people can instead of just going to our Instagram, you can just go there um, and yeah, and, sh and show your support and solidarity. And of course, we stand with with you as well. This podcast does. But I think it would mean more like Midian said, coming from like your personal email account and doing stuff like that. And and as a, as a consumer um, saying something. So thank you again, Midian. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erin. It's been such a pleasure to be a part of this podcast, and uh, I wish you uh, all all the best in the future, and uh, uh, may this uh, reach reach many, many more ears. You're Thank great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are too. Thank you. Seriously. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Midian, again, for sitting down again with me to talk to me. Uh, please make sure to check out Midian's work. 
at MunsterMakeupEffects.com. You can see her work there. You can find contact information. You can also follow her on all social platforms at MunsterMidian. Um, you can find her um, on Facebook and I believe on Instagram, on Twitter. And once again, I'm going to be posting a link also to the IA Stories account on Instagram. So please be sure to follow that. Listen to those stories. You may think you can't do anything, but like Midian said, you know, we are consumers. And as consumers, you know, we also have to make our voices heard. So since you are consuming that media, try and stand with the people that are making that media because there's a lot of abuses going on. So this podcast stands with them. And I hope you will too. Thank you so much. Um, And next week, sorry, next week on the show, we are going to be first talking about queer horror. So we're going to have again, Roman and Tyler, the directors of Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm very excited to have them back. And so we're going to be talking about, so we're going to be talking about queer horror. That's going to be a fun conversation. And then next Friday, we are going to be talking about Nia DaCosta's Candyman, as well as the original. I'm not going to say the name again because I'm so worried I'm going to say it, (laughs) you know, five times. But we're going to be talking about both of those, and that should be a lot of fun. So I'm really looking looking forward to that. Excuse me. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate.